we continue this morning with our study of the parables of Jesus. Uh, parables are that, that special form of teaching that Jesus frequently used, and they're found in the first three Gospels, the Ga Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No parables in the Gospel of John. Parable is a, a short story given from real life to il illustrate a truth Jesus was teaching. It may help to, to remember what a parable is by the meaning of the word. Uh, if you put the two Greek words together, para, para, alongside, like a paralegal, someone who's alongside an attorney, uh, with the word balo, the Greek word for to throw or to cast, you have the idea of a parable being, a, being something Jesus would throw or cast alongside a teaching to help illustrate or illumine that teaching. The parable we look at today is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or if you grew up listening to King James Version, the wheat and the tares. The first thing to say about this parable that uh, J.M. read just a moment ago is that it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24 of Matthew 13 says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That, <clears throat> that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, we will see repeatedly, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. I think 34 times it's found just in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven could be used interchangeably with the kingdom of God, or sometimes in the parables it's just the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But what does it mean? This is one of the most important phrases to understand, to really grasp the teaching of Jesus in his parables. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom has to do with the rule and the reign of God. When Jesus began preaching, we read in the gospel of Mark chapter 1, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God has to do with the rule and reign of God. Jesus is announcing the coming of the kingdom in his own coming. But is the kingdom present today? Yes. The Apostle Paul, writing after Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, said, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is where his rule and reign is in the hearts of his people. And yet the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness when Jesus returns. On that day when the writer of the book of Revelation says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever. Theologians say that the kingdom of God is now, yes, it's already and not yet. That is not yet in its fullness. So much of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels has to do with life as a member of the kingdom of God. Now, one of the most important things we can say about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is that it must be entered by every person. We are not born physically in this world into the kingdom of God. We must be born again into the kingdom of God. 
Jesus, in his conversation with a man named Nicodemus, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand this. He said, How could a person enter his mother's womb again to be born? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, through embracing the gospel, the gospel that Jesus would bring about in his dying on the cross to pay for our sins, embracing this gospel through the work of the Spirit in us, we are regenerated, we are made alive, we are born again, and we enter the unseen kingdom of God. Kingdom is not visibly seen, it's not felt, it's entered through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians this way. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, he was telling them, writing to them of what Jesus had done for them. And he, he says, he, that is God, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're made members of a new kingdom. It's the kingdom of God in which we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The most important decision any person can make in life is to embrace the gospel of Jesus and enter the kingdom of God and become forever a participant in a member of the kingdom of God. So this is a parable about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's also one of the few parables that Jesus explains to his disciples. After the telling of the parable to a large crowd, we read, he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to us saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so Jesus gives a very clear explanation, one of the few parables in which Jesus tells us what the, the various components of the parable mean. You'll see it in this little chart on the screen. Jesus explains, the one who sows the good seed, the one called the, the master in this parable, is the son of man. Now, son of man, the son of man, is Jesus' title for himself. He used it frequently in the Gospels. And... I think the reason he uses it, use it so frequently is it reveals that he is the Messiah. It is the fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament book of Daniel about one like the Son of Man. So Jesus is not saying he's not the Son of God. He is. But he's also the Son of Man. The field, Jesus says, where this seed is being sown is this whole world. The good seed, the son to the kingdom, the people of the kingdom, the people who've embraced the gospel. The weeds are the sons of the, the evil one. These are the ones the apostle Paul said were, were in the kingdom, the domain of darkness. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. That's the end of the age. That's when Jesus returns and the reapers are the angels. Now, as we stand back and take a look at this parable to see what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God, I think three, three things stand out. 
and they are conflict, counterfeit, and clarity. First of all, the conflict. There is a battle against the fruit-bearing work of the seed. Jesus, again, in, in giving the parable, says, a man sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And as we just saw, he'll a few minutes later explain that the enemy is the devil. If you were with us last week, we looked at the parable of the, the sower, and Jesus explained that, that some of the seed sown fell on the path, and birds came and and ate up that seed. And Jesus explained in that case, that was the devil warring against the work of the seed, warring against the fruit bearing power of the seed. And now we see weeds growing up along with the, um, the various plants of, of wheat. Now, one thing we know about weeds, any of you have a garden at your house, garden in your yard, your backyard somewhere, do you ever weed the garden? Of course you do. And why is that? Why do you take out the weeds? Well, the weeds compete for space, for sunlight, for water, for nourishment. They compete. They, they steal. Right now, our front yard looks kind of like a, a dust bowl, and the only thing growing is the weeds because it's been so dry. Weeds compete for space. And Jesus, again, has told us that the enemy is the devil. He uses deception. It's notable that that it's while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. That is the nature of Satan. He always works to defeat the work of God in and through God's people, often by causing doubt about God's word. Do you know what the first words in the Bible are to be spoken by Satan? His very first words in Scripture. They're found in the book of Genesis at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan comes to Eve and he says this. Did God actually say? He always works to cause doubt about the truthfulness, the integrity of God's word. There's conflict. There's battle against the fruit-bearing work of the seed. This is one of the truths about the kingdom of God. Secondly, there's counterfeit. There will be people who appear to be part of the kingdom who are not really part of the kingdom. In this parable, when Jesus uses the word weeds that are sown by the enemy, he uses a Greek word, zazania. And as I looked up the meaning, here's the simple meaning of the word, a weed resembling wheat. In other words, they're weeds, they compete for the space and the soil, attempt to choke out the wheat, but they look like wheat. They are counterfeits. Jesus warned that this is how Satan works against his people. On the screen, you see a verse from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was teaching here in his Sermon on the Mount, and he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
false teachers, false prophets, don't come in a red suit with a pitchfork looking like the devil. They come looking like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. There will be counterfeits living in the world, and it will be difficult sometimes to distinguish the real from the false, the counterfeit from the genuine. Jesus says observe the fruit. The Apostle Paul often warned about false teachers. He had uh, conflict throughout much of his ministry through counterfeit teachers coming into the churches. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes these words about those who come to deceive those in the church. He writes, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And note these words now. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants or his ministers disguise themselves as servants or ministers of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They're counterfeits. These false teachers, Paul says, they're going to be found behind pulpits. They're going to be found in seminaries. That's often where doubt is cast on the integrity of God's word in our country today. Many of the theolo institutions of theological education that were strong in their, their stand for God's word are now places where people get little besides unbelief. Where it's considered ridiculous to believe that all scripture is inspired by God. This will come to light, Jesus is warning. There will be conflict, Yes. There'll be many counterfeits, yes, but there will eventually come clarity. Clarity and the good seed will be distinguished from the counterfeit at the close or the end of the age. And now Jesus tells us of a time when everything will become clear. This occurs, this end of the age, close of the age, at the return of Jesus. Jesus says the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. The day of judgment is spoken of so often in Scripture, sometimes it's simply called the day because apparently those whom Jesus taught and the Apostle Paul taught knew that it was the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. It will be a day of great joy for those who know Jesus when we are presented before the Father in the words of Scripture, blameless and with great joy because of our salvation in Jesus. But for others, it will be a day of utter terror. Many who were not true believers will be exposed in that day. Jesus spoke often about this day and the reality of eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, 
he spoke of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and also those who do not truly know him. He referred to it as eternal punishment. And I have to say, well, two things I'll say. First of all, a true believer need not fear because the work of Jesus for his people is so complete that he has purchased our salvation, our acceptance before a holy God. But I'll tell you that I do fear for some. I fear for some people that I care about, I know, I love. Because I fear that they are living in a counterfeit faith. And it troubles me. It troubles me a lot because on the day of judgment, as glorious and joyful as it will be for those of us who have truly embraced Jesus Christ, it will be a terrible day for many, not few, many who think they are Christians but are really not. And I only say this because that is what Jesus said in the words you see on the screen. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and I believe he's speaking of the day of judgment, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and all of its fullness. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. That troubles me because Jesus says there will be many like this, many who have been deceived, many who thought they were Christians but were really not. Jesus was very clear about the reality of a place called hell. It is difficult to talk about hell. It's difficult because I know that it's real. And I am troubled by people I have known and loved whose faith I do not believe is truly in Jesus. I've known many people over the years, had a nominal faith, went to church some. They would check the box that says Christian, but there's absolutely no evidence of love for Jesus Christ and his lordship in their lives. And I fear for them. I'm going to stop right now and just pray. Lest there be anyone among us in that case. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Savior, the King of Kings, I pray for every man and woman, for every student and child in this room. I pray that you would do such a work of your Holy Spirit that we would not be deceived that we would see our need and we would see and understand the greatness of your salvation and we would embrace your saving lordship through Jesus so that that day will indeed be a glorious day 
would you, Lord, receive us blameless and with great joy in your presence. For those in our families, for those we know, for those in our neighborhoods, for our friends whose faith is merely nominal, we beseech you for their salvation. We beseech you for the opportunities to make the gospel clear to them. Would you do this, Lord? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we leave this parable, let me say this. Those who truly know Jesus, the good seed, are not good seed because they've been the most religious, they've been at church the most. The good seed owe their position to Jesus, the Son of Man. He's the one who owns the field. He's the one who sows the good seed in the field. They are called the righteous and will live forever in the kingdom of their father. Now, how could any person be called righteous if the apostle Paul says very clearly in the book of Romans, no one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, we have to read the rest of the story. It brings us to what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's only possible that we're called the righteous and will live forever in God's kingdom because of the gospel, the good news. I think the, the good news of the gospel is really well summarized in one verse in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. And here's what it says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. He took our sin upon himself. Our iniquity was laid upon him, so that in him, through him, through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He bore he bore our sin so we could bear his righteousness. Merely knowing about it's not enough. There has to come the actual reception of Jesus as Savior and Lord. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And for those of us who have done that, we come now to the point in the service where we celebrate that. We celebrate it with what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. I'm going to ask those serving to prepare to come to the front. In a moment, we'll pass the bread and then the juice to you. But first, I want to read these words from the Apostle Paul. He wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does the Apostle Paul mean by that? 
He's telling us that when we partake of the bread and the juice, we're making a visible proclamation that we, by faith, have received the benefits of Jesus, his body given on the cross, his blood shed on the cross. We have received this. We have been forgiven. And we are proclaiming that as we take communion. It's such a serious thing to do that the Apostle Paul gives a warning not to do it in a, quote, unworthy manner. An unworthy manner would be taking it without regard for what it means, taking it as a religious ritual with no heart devotion to Jesus, or taking it with a heart that's really in rebellion against God, filled with bitterness, hatred toward another person. Communion is a time to search our hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare us. So what I'd like to do now is take a moment to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. At the end of the prayer, I'll invite you, if you'd like, to join me in saying the Apostles' Creed, proclaiming what we believe. But first, let's pray together. Father, we pray the words of King David. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Guide us now, Lord. Prepare us to take communion, this holy thing, the Lord's Supper, to take it in the right way before you.